0: Hello there and welcome to Tech Radio, the number one Irish tech podcast with you every Friday morning with your favourite podcasting app or Friday evenings on RTE Radio. My name is Dusty Rhodes. This is show number 941. Joining me as always is our Editor-in-Chief Niall Kitson. Niall, big news this week as Ireland, for the very first time, goes to space.
2: Yeah, AirSat 1, it's finally going. Uh, super exciting, actually. I mean, it's, uh, well, you've, you've got this. You, you know exactly the nature of the mission.
0: I do. Uh, and I'll tell you, I'm excited about the fact that we're going to put a satellite into space for the first time, but I am more excited by the fact that the satellite has been built and designed and tested by students mm-hmm. and some professors at UCD. The fact that yeah. we have Irish students building something that is actually going to go into space is just amazing. Earthat um, One is going to research gamma rays. This this is part of the project, and another part of the project is to uh, test the ways that satellites move themselves around in space.
2: Yeah, and a, a, a nice little detail: uh, it's got a poem about home and the universe uh, written by uh, kids. Uh, etched into the side of it. So it's it, it was a mixture of um, junior cert libraries, desk schools and the UCD English department all worked on this uh, this poem about home in the universe. It's on the satellite. What a lovely touch.
0: Do you know what we could have done? Well You know, like the, the Voyager uh, satellite has got like a gold disc on it with all the sounds mm. of earth and stuff like that. We could have put like a disc on the Irish one with like a, a famous Irish song. Like what would you pick? I would pick
2: you know as like to be an ambassador of our country to explain who we are as a people, as Irish people. Yeah. Um yeah, I'd put my lovely horse.
0: <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs>
2: it's true though you want to know who the <laughs> Actually, Irish are
0: yeah it, it, you know it does so up so very very well uh, what else we got happening in the news today yes broadband on planes
2: yeah uh, a, a good aviation story for you being the aviation nerd oh. uh, all linked into Starlink and Mr. Musk who mm. we seem to talk about every week but uh, you remember um, there was arguments about Starlink and Ukraine because the Ukrainian army was using uh, Starlink broadband to help coordinate its efforts. Then all of a sudden the broadband stopped working. Uh, But now we're getting it on passenger planes. So how does this work out?
0: Well, uh, technically speaking, all right, uh, it works out very well in that you get a much better connection. Uh, Actually, at the moment with satellite, uh, they're able to get up to 100 megs per 100 meg connection, Mm. all right, with a satellite. But that is per plane. All right. So Mm. if everybody on the plane is going to be using the internet or whatever, like, you know, it's going to slow it down uh, dramatically. Uh, But because Starlink is that much closer to Earth and the connection is that much better, they're reckoning that they're going to be able to have a throughput of 350 megs. For the whole plane. For the whole plane, yes. And of importance, all right, is that the latency, all right, which is the the speed at which it'll work as in to get from A to B, uh, will be 20 milliseconds, which is actually not bad. Hmm, okay. So what they're talking about now is that, (laughs) and this is where the story takes a dark turn. Oh, here we go. Yeah, go on. This will enable passengers to make video calls. (laughs) Doesn't sound terribly dark. Do you think? Do you no. know, never remember when uh, they were first talking about bi- allowing people to use mobile phones on planes, yeah. or to and and there was a huge Ferrari about the fact that people will be able to talk on their phones on planes. Nobody wanted it. Do, well, it wasn't wasn't
2: that argument that it it interfere with the instruments?
0: They had that argument, and then after they came uh, about and kind of went, ah, do you know what? Actually, it doesn't really. <laughs> <laughs> Or what? Once once the uh, the airline is providing the uh, uh, the internet uh, to make your calls in a safe manner, etc., whatever, blah blah blah.
2: Suddenly, blah. it's okay.
0: Uh, yeah, whatever. It's all okay and whatever now, okay. But there was a huge thing about if you, they, you were allowed to make phone calls on planes while you were in the air. Nobody wanted that. Mm. It was great to see the public going. Are you kidding me? It's bad enough on a bus. All right. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I see where you're coming from now. There you go. You see, you see, you see. But uh, I think think that could be interesting. Broadband on planes, what would you do with it? I mean, one of the advantages, actually, I think, of being on a plane is that you can't connect with the world below you. It's actually one of those rare times where you're like, you know, you're not in touch. Yeah.
2: Well, if you've got a decent in-flight entertainment system... Uh,
0: there you go. Or your own laptop or your own iPad or whatever. Anyway, speaking of people who are in touch, yeah. Kanye West. Yeah. Yeah.
2: In touch or, or touched? Uh, wow. Well, maybe that's a bit I, I think Maybe, maybe that's, a maybe that's not a nice thing to say. <laughs> um, prob- probably not, because there are legitimate concerns about his, uh, about his mental health. Um, so, yeah, Kanye West has bought the right-wing social network parlor. Now, are you are you familiar with Parler, Dusty? Uh, mm. Have you signed up?
0: All I know about Parler is that that this was a Donald Trump thing when they kicked him off Twitter. He tried to get on that, and then Parler found itself being banned from everything.
2: Parler is it's a, a, a Twitter competitor for the right. So basically, uh, if you wanted to look at sort of the tweetscape, mm. there's like Twitter as we know it, um, which has its sort of content moderation guidelines that they're trying. To, uh, to implement to the best of their ability, apparently. Um, however, there are alternatives that lean towards what is sometimes called free speech absolutism, mm. which is, yep, say what you want, whenever you want, just go for it, we're not going to moderate you, um, which have become a haven for right-wing voices. So you had Gab, which is sort of uh, where the alt-right gravitated to. Then you have uh, Parler, Uh, which is sort of pretty much a a harder right. And now you've truth social for as long as it's going to be around. I mean, it sounds like a bit of Trump technology company, Mm. sounds like a bit of a basket case. So Parler is very much where um, conspiracy theories were thrown about with abandon. If you want to find out about QAnon, Parler is where you go. And there was, uh, of course, it was used an awful lot prior to the January 6th riots as well. Uh, the feds were apparently monitoring social media traffic on, on Parler. Parler, which actually has a history of um, uh, right-wing activism behind it. It was co-founded by Rebecca Mercer of the, the Mercer family, mm. who you might know, big, massive Republican donors uh, made their money in software. And uh, that's that's kind of where it came from. Now, unfortunately for Parler, it got kicked off the iTunes store, got kicked off Google Play and AWS revoked Uh, its services from them. So Parler was effectively just a name for a while. Um, Eventually, after undertaking to start moderating its content, it was allowed back in the Apple Store and Google Play, but it's still pretty much a shadow of what it was. So Kanye West has sort of come in himself a refugee from Instagram and Twitter uh, over various uh, anti-Semitic statements he's made, so he's decided to buy his own right-wing now, net- his own social network, where nobody can tell him what to do. Does this is kind of, sound kind of familiar?
0: It does. And who is he pals with?
2: Yeah. 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 We talked about him already on the show, yeah. albeit in passing. Mm-hmm. So uh, Kanye said on Twitter that he was going, oh, I can't even repeat it. He, he, yeah, he, no. he said something really stupid. Yeah. And Elon Musk apparently intervened and said, you know, I've I've talked with Kanye and I... I think he's taken what I said to him to heart because Elon Musk thinks he's the great peacemaker of our times. Uh, No, no. um, Kanye just bought himself a right-wing social network where he can spout whatever he wants all day, every day. (sighs) Uh, However, financial terms of the deal... Unknown. So he yeah. could have bought this thing for a tenner.
0: He could have. Yeah, that's probably all it's worth. Uh, final bit of news for this week is uh, DuckDuckGo, which is a great mm. little browser if you don't like people knowing who you are, or you don't like ad tracking or whatever. Uh, it hasn't been available on the Mac. Until now. Uh, And the first uh, beta version is available publicly on the Mac you get on the DuckDuckGo website. Uh, It means there's been no ad tracking. Uh, It's got a good email tracker blocker uh, and it has built-in Bitwarden as well for your passwords and stuff like that. So it's worth checking out. That is is it uh, for uh, NewsWise this week. Remember, you can get the lowdown on all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more. All for you on our website for free at techcentral.com.
1: This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie.
0: GDPR is a fact of life for EU citizens, but how is it viewed overseas? And should there be some kind of gold standard so that companies can prove that they are in compliance? Liam McKenna is a partner in Mazar's Ireland consulting practice, and he spoke to Niall Kitson during the week about the current state of data protection. (laughs)
2: Liam, GDPR is just a fact of life at this stage. For a lot of people, it feels like it has ever been thus. Uh, of course, there are major discussions uh, going on around the world about how to replicate uh, maybe not the success of GDPR, but certainly the intentions of it. Um, take us back those few years ago to the the climate uh, pre-G- pre-GDPR and the kind of changes people thought they would have to make um, but maybe didn't in the end?
1: Yeah, I think probably the, the point that organisations, and, and there is a difference between how this is succeeded for organisations versus for data subjects or individuals. I think from an organisational perspective, there was a fear back in 2017, 2018, that it would be an extremely aggressive enforcement um, approach Followed by the Data Protection Commission, and that there would be sanctions, and equally there would be a lot of civil actions and fines and um, you know court cases. I, I think what we found is that while organisations absolutely have been frustrated by what they would perceive to be an abuse of the GDPR, reg- uh, you know, the, the regulation by in- individuals who are just annoyed with them and want to weaponize it, that generally. The DPC certainly hasn't been aggressive um, or wouldn't be viewed as aggressive by many. And um, the, the civil actions that you know were, I suppose, anticipated have been relatively few. Most organizations haven't seen them. Um, so I think what we've probably found is that there was a little bit of, oh, okay, you know, this isn't so bad after people got over the initial hump. And I know we've done a survey for the last... I think since we did the first one in 2017 with McCann Fitzgerald every year and we ask organizations, you know, what do they think about GDPR and what are they doing in order to comply? And the attitudes towards it certainly improved in those for after those first couple of years and that they felt that it had helped them with their discipline around data and, you know, they want to do the right thing for individuals. So um, I think that was positive. I think now there may be a building towards um, a slow build towards a future stage, which is Probably going to be a little bit more uh, enforcement focused than has been to date, and and certainly consumers are a lot more educated now and refined in how they're approaching it. And, and probably actually the thing that's um, added to that is that we have uh, civil actions or you know civil action groups who have come out like Max Rams, who who in in effect is the one who's created the challenges around uh, privacy shields, safe harbor, and these transfers to the states. Um, he has done a lot of work with his organisation, none of your business, around say cookies and and other um, kind of general, uh, commonly uh, commonly uh, common problems, I suppose you would call them. So, so we're getting it from a number of areas that probably has is is building now into um, what might become stable over the next couple of years. I think the impact of Max Schrems really can't be
2: understated when it comes to the uh, the discourse on data protection, and if if a uh, we had him on the show uh, a couple of years ago and uh, it was on the cusp of Privacy Shield 2, um, which was meant to be sort of the the great solution to transatlantic data processing. Um, still, we still haven't seen uh, an adequate solution to it. Do you think this is down to the, the fundamental difference in perception between the value of data uh, within the EU uh, compared with how it is seen uh, in the U.S. as more of a, a commodity.
1: Yes, and, and certainly, you know, Joe Biden has signed an executive order a couple of weeks back, um, which is, you know, a step towards Privacy Shield 2. And Max Rems has already kind of said, look, I haven't seen the detail, but this is unlikely to cut the mustard. It's probably going to suffer from the same problems. And, you know, ultimately those problems are that in the U.S., uh, the corporate right is is probably stronger. And then relatively speaking in Europe, um, versus the individual, and uh, also just the, the US legislation around um, looking and, and listening to what people are doing. You know recently it was just revealed that the transport uh, agency, the TSA in the US, you know when you hand them your phone now in Dublin Airport, and they ask you to open it, they've been sucking all the data off people's phones. Um, and keeping it for themselves, and they haven't been telling anybody that. So you know that's just bro- blown the whole conversation up again. Um, however, you know we say that, and, and there are there are governments in Europe that have equivalent laws to the ones that create these challenges in the states. But yet, because they're within Europe, they don't get as much focus. Um, but certainly, there is a there is a, a fundamental difference between the laws in the US and the access that the security services have in the US or can demand in the US versus what we understand is the case in most European countries.
2: It is something that is still being worked on, particularly in uh, California, which I think has become a little bit of a trailblazer over there.
1: Yeah, no, certainly uh, the, the Californian law is quite Similar to data protection, um, sorry, to the GDPR law, you know, it has a lot of similarities anyway about recognizing individuals having rights and about obligations being applied to organizations. Um, you know, they still struggle with the fact that there isn't a federal law and that the, you know, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which is a federal law, has, Given the NSA and these other bodies, all of these rights, which would apply in California as much as they'd apply anywhere else. So, you know, our big challenge is around the cloud providers, the big, um, you know, the the Amazons and Microsoft, these organizations that are US organizations, which are um, theoretically very vulnerable to requests for data from security agencies in the States.
2: And of course, we've now got uh, another, for, for want of a, a better expression, uh, another theatre, I suppose, uh, in looking at the UK post Brexit, where I know they are looking at sort of uh, revising their data protection measures, which are largely sticking to GDPR, but kind of with the option to insert their own uh, their own quirks and clauses.
1: Yeah, so they did. They did publish a bill um, there. Probably, like, I can't remember now if it was six months or a year ago. I went through it at the time, and and certainly it, it you know, they're trying to walk a fine line between demonstrating um, a, a kind of boost from Brexit and some benefit from Brexit by reducing uh, regulation. Um, however, recognizing as well probably that if they don't maintain their adequacy decision with Europe, they're just creating a massive problem. So you know, it would be silly to, for them to say we're going to. You know reduce all this data protection legislation and you'll be fine and there's no problems however none of their businesses can then do business with the uk uh with the europe and in fact there was one car manufacturer i read about recently that's doing a lot in um you know automating driving and in computer systems which are tracking what's going on and that organization it has stated that it is not going to make an investment in the uk because it's just not clear that it will be able to sell and manage its services from the UK into Europe because of this uncertainty. And look, you know, it's a broader thing. The UK obviously is a very uncertain or um, legislative uh, country at the moment. And you know, the the sorts of the GDPR is similar to many of the other regulations, which I suppose corporates generally want certainty or a plan. And uh, that's broader than our conversation. I'd say now.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, it's it's very important to look at Ireland's position within uh, the GDPR landscape, because for obvious reasons, all the American companies are uh, have their European operations here, well, certainly most of them. And one of the main appeals of GDPR was the creation of a, a one-stop shop where you, you would only need to um, sue uh, in the country of the European base as opposed to sort of anywhere across Europe. That particular approach seems to have imploded over the last year or so, starting with the decision in the German court for consumer organizations to take up cases on behalf of people against the tech giants, kind of on the basis of the fact that the DPC in Ireland was moving too slowly when it came to a lot of high-profile cases. Um, can you see a further fracturing of this, or do you think it'll be a case of the Irish operation will become a bit sleeker, a bit smoother, and a bit more aggressive?
1: Well, uh, I do think the Irish operation will probably become the, some of those attributes you've put in there, but in, in that you know, we're obviously appointing two additional data protection commissioners Um, over the next few months. So there will be three data protection commissioners which was provided for in the Data Protection Act. Uh, But to date, we've only had one, Helen Dixon. Um, So the likelihood is is that that will certainly help. Um, However, when you look at the objectives of the one-stop shop, I think they they were thought of from the perspective of controllers and data subjects, but not really from the supervisor's perspective. Like the objective was to simplify the burden for organizations. And for individuals to be able to exercise their rights in in their home base, and so it made sense from that perspective. But if you look at how the DPC has been resourced, and it is in effect uh, the regulator for you know the largest organisations, the largest multinational organisations, big tech organisations in Europe, it's very difficult to see us scaling up to the level that will be needed to face off against these organizations. Like I'm, I'm not privy to the conversations, but I'd imagine, you know, the DPC will be going along to meetings with some of these big tech players with, you know, two or three individuals and, and possibly facing off against 15 or 20 individuals and a team behind those of, of 100 or 200. So um, unless, uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think we're ever scaling to that point. And I think the one-stop shop hasn't really been a success. Um, and I'm not sure, even with the additional super, uh, data protection commissioners being appointed, if we would be able to really um, challenge those large organisations. While also, you know, looking after all of the other things, there's so many mid-sized and smaller organisations who individuals have problems with, and you know, who aren't maybe doing what they should be doing, who the DPC probably doesn't have the bandwidth to address. And now, obviously, the, the, the DPC did. Streamline some of its processes in that, you know, complaints can now be shut down more quickly, um, breaches, it, it, it doesn't have to act as much in breaches, it doesn't have to follow through as much on everything, it can kind of park them to some extent, so the DPC has given itself some ability to reduce the workload coming out of those, but yeah, I don't know that it's ever going to be able to meet the scale that would be required to face off against multinational big tech located in Ireland.
2: It's a very interesting picture that you paint there of uh, our, our little DPC staff of, of three walking in uh, to a, a massive table full of 15 or so corporate lawyers <laughs> looking across at them. Um,
1: however, yeah, and, uh, Look, I haven't been in the rooms, right, but that's how I <laughs> imagine it. <laughs> I might be wrong.
2: Um, there is, of course, good news for uh, for businesses because um, at the moment it has probably felt like GDPR is this boogeyman that we have to be sort of over prepared for, and there there hasn't been that sort of simple certification stamp of approval uh, to date for uh, for compliance. But that seems to have changed now with the GDPR seal.
1: Yeah, so um, the GDPR in, in Article forty two and forty three talks about certifications and seals. And obviously that just went into force in 2018, but takes a lot of time then to develop. So the first European-wide data protection certification or seal was approved by the European Data Protection Board last week, Um, last week being the 11th of October. And um, so that's a massive step forward for for, I suppose, standardization of compliance and to um, support organizations. I think what what I find when I talk to clients is that um, they want to be able to demonstrate where they've invested in GDPR and they do a good job. They want to try and differentiate themselves from other comparable, you know, other peers they compete with who who haven't made the investment, right? And, And how can a data subject, a consumer, know, you know, these guys take it seriously. So that's important. We also find that there's a lack of confidence with boards and they're going, well, Tell us we're compliant, or tell us that we're you know we we, we have our GDPR fully covered off. Where it is a risk-based regulation, and there is always risk. Um, so it's not really ever possible to say we're fully one hundred percent compliant and have no no problems. But what you can say is we've paid a lot of attention to this, and we've gone to the effort of certifying some of our high-risk processes, and therefore we can be more confident. And and ultimately within the regulations, um, certification is listed as having to be considered if a supervisor was going to impose any sort of sanction or fine. And that, you know, it would be seen that if you have gone to the effort of becoming certified, then systemically you're taking this seriously and, you know, you have been possibly unlucky as opposed to you don't really take it seriously and they finally caught you. So I think there's a a role to play for certification, which, um, hopefully will allow consumers and organisations to more easily identify those that take it seriously from those that maybe take it less seriously.
2: And of course, then from a a business perspective, perhaps in the same way that people look to progress and sustainability, that people might look to do more business with companies that are demonstrating progress in data protection as well.
1: Well, certainly that's the hope. And I think within or certainly within the sectors such as financial services where, you know, these financial services organizations put trust and client trust really at the top of their materiality assessments, the things that really drive success in their business. Um, And so they would see potential to um, differentiate themselves and have some sort of competitive advantage if they are first to market with a certification uh, of a process such as, you know, opening a new bank account, are, you know, taking on a new insurance product.
2: So then let's have a look at crimes of the future. If, if you do think there will be any um, in this sort of, uh, in the new age of data protection, what, what particular pitfalls can you see people uh, falling victim to uh, in the future?
1: Well, I think we're we're finding there's more legislation coming down the track um, around data and AI and analytics, and so you know there are certain organisations that are going to have to maintain their and um, upgrade their compliance there, depending on if they come into scope. Um, and we're probably seeing that you know there are areas such as retention which still challenge. Um, I think probably from a from a business perspective, one of the areas that could have the most significant impact is all around the area of like how the internet works with regard to marketing. And um, we mentioned Max Rams before, and in his focus on cookies, and you know he's really driving a program to try and uh, his view would be that individuals don't want to accept cookies, but we make it very difficult for them to reject them. And he wants more and more to have a reject all button, which I think when we've done A-B testing on this, you know, if you have a managed settings button button and an accept all button, and then you go to reject all button and an accept all button and a managed setting button, the, the level of people who choose reject all is very high. It could be 60 to 80%. And so that, you know, will change what, what is being, you know, Understanding how your how your websites are being used, who's engaging with them, and then you have Johnny Ryan looking into the real time bidding process, which is you know as he would refer to it a GDP or free zone, which is really challenging how the economy of of marketing on the internet works. So I think that's something that savvy organisations will start to think: okay, what comes down the track here, and how does it affect our overall marketing approach if cookies. And tracking uh, are significantly changed, um, and I think then the other way probably is, is the whole data protection by design and default. If you think about it, much of what happened in 2018 in the early years of GDPR was about papering over what had been done. It was a, it was a documentation exercise, whereas now it really is a thinking exercise. Are is what we're doing consistent with the principles of GDPR? And, Organizations are getting the opportunity to build in data protection design and defaults at the very early stages of significant projects and because of this, and, and because they know what they need to do, they're happy to do it. So I do think over time it's leading to great, um, better solutions which respect privacy more, but yes, don't undermine businesses significantly because they have they've been thinking about it from the beginning, and they're you know they're they're building technology platforms and solutions to recognise what's needed with regard to the principles.
0: And that was Lee McKenna partner at Mazar's Ireland chatting with Niall Kitson. That's it for our show this week. Do remember you can get the lowdown on all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates daily newsletters and more at our website techcentral.ie and of course you can catch us each week online or Fridays on RTE Radio one extra. Until next time from myself Dusty Rhodes and from Niall Kitson have a great weekend.
1: Get tech radio subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at Tech Central